UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show, brand, did it re live? I don't know. Oh. oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The typical skeptic podcast. I have a back another fascinating guest with me today. This is his second time on my show. And who I have with me is the, the amazing Esoteric Eddie. Um, Eddie has been researching esoteric truths for over two decades. And he's an author, a documenter, and a multifaceted artist. He's the author of the book, um, The Lucifer Mystery. And also he's the author of the book, The Anunnaki Theorem. But what you guys really have to check out and what I would really highly recommend is his YouTube channel. It's Esoteric Eddie TV, where he covers all the subjects that we talk about on this. But he goes to like deep lengths. He does like small documentaries where he covers topics like so like the topics we're going to talk about today i i picked all of them from his youtube channel i mean he's written a book on the anunnaki but he you know you you if you, you have to just check out his youtube channel to see what i'm talking about if you guys already aren't subscribed but uh i want to give him a big warm welcome to the show eddie thank you for coming back on how are you what up what up i'm doing great man glad to be back thank you for having me um, so my first question for you is I was looking through your YouTube channel and I saw that you were able to go to the pyramids. How how was that experience for you and what was the energy like there? Yeah, that was my first time of going out to see the pyramids in uh, Mexico, in Chichen Itza. Um, it was just an amazing time all around. I got to hang out over there in the Yucatan Peninsula and Tulum and to see a lot of the ancient sites. And it was it was wild, you know, when that like whole field of vision opens up when you go through the little walkway and you just see the pyramid just open up for you. It's just the energy is just undeniable. Yeah, I know uh, Gerald Clark was he drew a lot of parallels to the, the pyramids in Mexico. He thought that that was like that Thoth was eventually down there at, at one point. Like, I, I don't know if you follow that story or that, that I know you follow the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. But do you think Thoth might have went from Egypt to Mexico that he like that he and or what do you think happened down there with, to, make, to make those pyramids? Yeah, um, Gerald Clark's uh, theory, I think, was coming from like Zechariah Sitchin's theory and Zechariah Sitchin in one of his books, I think, well, yeah, in his book, The Lost Realms, which I have, which is the one that covers the Americas and everything. He stated that there was a small time period in Egyptian uh, history where Toth was apparently kicked out of the, of the Royal court and all that stuff. And at that exact time, 
is when the Americas were like founded. And apparently <clears throat> the Olmecs were led to the Americas by Quetzalcoatl. And um, the first representation or the earliest representation of a feathered serpent actually comes from the artwork of the Olmecs. So legend goes that the Olmecs who seemingly have African figure or uh, African features were led to the Americas by Quetzalcoatl, you know, the feathered serpent, uh, allegedly Toth, and were chosen, um, you know, or guided to, to build the foundation of what would become the Mexican race. And it is strange that the Olmecs pretty much kind of disappeared after they created the foundation of what would become the Mexican race. Yeah. Um, and, and what I was going to say was uh, all the, all the topics that I picked to, to talk about today, like they all tie in together. Like what we're talking about now, the Anunnaki, Lemuria, the root races, the reptilians, because when I watched your video on Lemuria and the root races, that almost kind of gets into like, that can kind of jump off into Hyperborea and Hyperborea, you can kind of speculate that the Anunnaki and Atlantis were around that time too. Can you talk about all that and how they might all relate? and and your your research on that yeah so lemuria atlantis the original root races are all subjects that that i've heard about and i'm sure a lot of us have heard about all throughout you know our journeys in the esoteric and truther community and so it's my job as basically an esoteric historian to just look at things examine them and get down to the bottom of them and so i decided to finally look at lemuria and what's going on with that and what I found was, um, for one, the idea of the, uh, the root races, that whole idea kind of came from Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky, the founder of one of the co-founders of the Theosophical Society. And she wrote a lot about the original root races in her books like Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine. And basically, basically she taught that um, just as we have physically evolved, we have also spiritually evolved. And that mankind as a whole has reached um, different developmental stages in consciousness. And so she taught that at one point we were just these like etherical spirit bodies. And over time, our bodies hardened as they acclimated to physical reality, which was unfolding. And eventually um, we became who we are today. But she said even along that process, there was a time where we were androgynous beings who used to lay eggs and eventually the sexes were formed and then um, conception through male and female was developed. Um, but she basically wrote all of that, wrote all of that um, as a response to the theory of evolution because Helena Blavatsky was alive during the time that the theory of evolution came out and was presented to the world and was this big popular idea. So her being a mystic, she wrote all of that as her response to what the theory of evolution was. And she tied it into Lemuria and Atlantis. And she taught, she taught that um, as we developed, Earth also developed, which is true. You know, our continents have shifted over the years or are still shifting. And so as we went through these aeons or these eons, um, there used to be different continents. You know, Earth used to look different. And so she believed that there were time periods where we're um, in our past where we lived on Lemuria and we lived on Atlantis, but as things shifted, those lands were destroyed and changed. Uh, but what I found was that the whole idea of Lemuria came from uh, a zoologist and his name is escaping me right now, but it's in my documentary. And this zoologist right around the same time of Blavatsky, 
he was studying um, the coastlines of Madagascar and India, and he found that there were similar uh, lemur bones um, off the coast of Madagascar in India. And so he came to the conclusion that there must have been some landmass in the Indian Ocean bridging Madagascar and India at some time. So uh, he named that place Lemuria after the lemur bones that he found. And so people like Blavatsky and others kind of took that theory at the time and ran with it. And in my documentary, I point out that, you know, she wasn't the only one. There's actually a legend in southern India coming from the Tamil nation about a sunken land off of the coast of India. And that land to them has always been known as Kumari Kandam. So when the zoologist and the theory of evolution and all of all of this stuff was coming out, a lot of the southern Indians um, took to all of that and used it as evidence that their legend of Kumari Kandam was also real. That's fascinating. Because I, I heard Billy Carson say that he thinks that what we could possibly be on Atlantis right now, like he thought that Atlantis was basically the entire world at one, you know, that it could have been possibly. So maybe Atlantis and Lemuria were just like what you said, the old, um, like that the earth was one, one once and that, that maybe one part of it was Atlantis and one part of it was Lemuria. Then because of like, like you said, like cataclysms and um, plate shifts and stuff like that, like the continents split up and, and obviously there was the, the great flood. And I think there were multiple cataclysms, right? Would you say there were multiple cataclysms? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult, you know, to map all of this stuff out and, get specific about all of it. I mean, in a lot of you know, cases, we have to generalize the data and generalize the history, you know, because we're dealing with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years and, and our, our, you know, our apparatuses or whatever can only go back so far. But yeah, I think, I think definitely this earth has seen a lot of different cataclysms, a lot of different changes, a lot of different civilizations and probably species of humanoids. And we're just a part of small, Part of a small timeline only going back about 7,000 years. So to think that this 7,000 years is all there ever was would be pretty arrogant of us. Yeah. So that makes me think about the Anunnaki. Like you wrote your book, The Anunnaki Theorem, and I watched your documentary on YouTube. It's amazing. It's it's fascinating because you look at it from like, you know, you, you, it's not just like, like people like think about the Anunnaki and there's a lot of different people doing stuff about the Anunnaki. There's Billy Carson, there's Matt LaCroix, there was Gerald Clark, there's Jason from Archaics and everybody has a little bit different theory about what, what they think is going on or what they think happened. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of, if you ask me, like I like to take a little bit of what everybody says and kind of let it resonate with me. But I also like to let what history says resonate with me. And you can go back and read the cuneiform tablets. I mean, I don't think it's just what Sitchin said. It's like, you know, there was people like George Smith, Austin, Henry Laird, Samuel Noah Kramer, who, who all translated the tablets before him. And it seems like these beings might've been existed or what, what was the conclusion that you drew on? Like if they were really here in the Anunnaki theorem. Yeah. So when I wrote the book and published it last year, I decided to relook at all of this stuff and examine it through my own critical mind, you know, without leaning on any other person's um, conclusion, just leaning on, the actual text and what scholars who actually discovered these texts had to say about them. And what I found was for one, what's very interesting is that the oldest known piece of 
literature to humanity right now is a Sumerian text, and it's called the Kesh Temple Hymn. And it's a fascinating text. It's really, when you read it, all it is is just these, these gods or these people, the Anunnaki, setting up some kind of ritual. So whatever it is they're doing, it's, it's, it's obvious that they're setting up some sort of ritual. And so um, that's just strange to think that the oldest text known to our entire existence here on this planet, allegedly, has to do with these people doing a ritual. And uh, uh, coupled with that is another text that's almost just as old, which is known as the Enki and World Order text. And in that text, we see the god Enki pretty much um, constructing society and uh, designating certain gods to certain positions in society. Like, you know, this God will be in charge of the farmland. This God will be in charge of this and that. So he's pretty much constructing society, constructing civilization. And some people would read that as if he was doing it for the first time, as if he, this was the story of creation. But when I'm reading it, I'm reading it as if these people are reconstructing society, restarting society. And what makes me think that is because there are two lines in the Enkian world order text which stand out. And it, they are the same line. They're repeated twice. And the line goes to something like this. It's that Enki saw that the Martu nomads um, were without house or without resource. And so he gave them um, some resource, some animals and food and stuff like that. And so I'm reading this and I'm thinking, if these are supposed to be the gods of creation and all this stuff, then, then who are these Martu nomads who are just out there on the fringe who have no resource? So I'm reading this thinking that these are survivors. You know, these are survivors who are restarting civilization and, and re-putting everything together. That's fascinating. When did you find out about this? Uh, how did you pronounce it? The te the, the oldest te the oldest Sumerian text, the Kesh Temple. How did you say that? I'm sorry. I never heard of that one yet. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's the Kesh Temple Hymn. And and when when did you discover this is um this is really fascinating to me. What can you explain a little bit more of what's going on? And I'm I'm gonna probably go try to read this after we get off here because like you know me, I'm fascinated with old Sumerian lore. Like what else does yeah. it say? Does it have like the are all the players in it, like Enki, Enlil, uh, Marduk, or are they not mentioned yet in that? Uh, well, what I will say real quick, just to close my my thoughts before we're um so I basically, I think that these people, the Anunnaki, I don't think they were gods from uh, another planet or some interdimensional travelers. I think that they were from here, at least these direct beings, you know, maybe their great ancestors were from somewhere else. But I think they were from here and that they survived some of these cataclysms that we know about and uh, wrote themselves into the history as the gods. Um, but the yeah. Kesh Temple hymn. Uh, I didn't know about it until I started doing the research for this book last year. You know, so I, as I was digging in on, into all of this, I had to go into all kinds of records. And I, and I came across that during my research. And from I'm trying to pull it up right now. From what I understand, I, I don't think any of the gods are named in in that text. But the word Anuna um, or Anunnaki is in the text. So they were around during that the creation of that text. 
while you're 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 thinking of that, I wanted to say that like your your what your theory says that they were they were probably from here, and I I kind of agree with that. It kind of lines up with what Jason from Archaic says. He talks about that they could have been possibly some inner Earth civilization, like you know, but with, with that they might have had advanced technology. I think like for for people to think that they were our gods, they would have had advanced technology. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, and I think they definitely had what we could call advanced technology, but it's not like, you know, some laser weapons. I mean, it could have been. It really could have been because we have a lot of strange artifacts that people time and time again, engineers time and time again, say like it couldn't have been created if without like some super power drill or this, this and that. Um, but what the way I understand it, you know, it's like technology, all technology really is, is just the taking of elements and arranging them in a certain way to create a tool, you know, like a laptop is just certain electronics that are made eventually from nature, you know, like uh, silicone, right? Silicone is a very abundant uh, resource or mineral that's found in our earth. And silicone is what we use for microchips and stuff like that. So um, whatever technology they had, it was built off of their designs, you know, the way they viewed technology, the way they understood minerals. And in our society today, everything's like a fast pace, make it as cheap as possible. Um, you know, we don't keep keep in mind longevity or, or divinity. So these people probably viewed life and everything differently. And, and when they built technology, they probably built it not so that they can put it on a shelf at Home Depot, but they probably built it so that it could last forever. And it was probably divine to them. And it was made carefully and, and um, with divinity in mind. Like, like, like the pyramids, like they, like you might saying that they might've created the pyramids and that's why the pyramids were created so special. Well, not the pyramids, but just the, the tools that they use to create the pyramids. For example, like I'm a plumber, right? So I deal with tools every day and they're always breaking. So, uh, and again, tools are just elements, raw, natural elements designed, put together to design a tool. So these people could have been using, for example, drills with like a, a diamond bit, mixed in with some other crazy mineral that we haven't even dis discovered yet. You know, that they, they could have been building tools with minerals and resources that we have even yet to think about putting together. Yeah. I mean, you would, you would have to think that like they had to have something really advanced because like we can't even mimic what the, what, what those, what they've were able to do in the past now. So there was something special, like, um, do you think that like we're starting to get to that point? Because it seems like we've come through like a, like a massive technological, like uh growth spurt in our, in our evolution. Like we're, uh, we're evolving more and more each and each and each every day. Like, or it seems like humanity is, is, is starting to pick up the pace, but this is what I wanted to say about that. This makes me think I didn't want to get off track. Like what I wanted to say was, if, if they were from here, what do you think that says about the enumulation, the Atrahasis? Like, because like, because like, okay, like in the Atrahasis, it says, if you read it, it says that the Anunnaki created humans. Like, so I don't know if you agree with that or if you think that, and then the Enumulish talks about like a solar system battle. Like, but it's not, it's not ever saying that there was a space war. People think that that could be an allegory or, so I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on those two um, pieces because I think tablets because I think they're the most important tablets when looking at the history. What, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, well, the tablets do say that they created us at least on two to three occasions that are available to us right now. And apparently we've found over like over half a million. Some people estimate a million texts since the 1800s. And this is coming from like reputable Assyriologists like Irv Finkel, who's like the head of the British Museum for Assyriology. And so we've found, yeah, like innumerable amount of texts, but only about 10% of them are available to the public, if that. And so from what I understand, there's only about two to three occasions available right now that do speak about them creating us. And each occasion is very simply put, nothing more different than what the Bible says. You know, they basically took their blood and always like some admixture of what they call clay or uh, the blood of some other um, Anunnaki or something and mix it together to create us. And so that whole explanation is where Sitchin got the idea of genetic engineering. And um, I don't doubt it, you know, because the homo sapien race, what we are, you know, we're regarded as homo sapien sapien, which sometimes confuses me. But um, we are a, a new creation. You know, the homo sapien race is is new and, and it's perplexing as to how we got here. I mean, anthropologists are still trying to piece this together. We haven't found the missing link. And from what's interesting is that uh, we're only about 100,000 years old. I think the oldest Homo sapiens skeletal fossil is like 100,000 years old. And um, but our consciousness, they say, the way we process information and is only about 50,000 years old. And so something had to happen to make these things jumpstart so quickly when hominids, you know, our ancestors have been around for millions of years old. So I think there is something to that. You know, I think we definitely were tinkered with by these beings. And then how would you like look at the Enuma Elish? Do you think that that's like more of like an allegory? Yeah, the Enuma Elish is fascinating. And uh, as you said, when you read it, it reads as if like it's a battle, you know, between these different gods. But Sitchin took it a step further and he did a very genius thing by looking at it and realizing that it was actually just a cosmological tale about how our solar system was created. And I kind of vibe with that, that idea. I think it's an astrotheological text. You know, it's, it's dealing with um, celestial occurrences, you know, how our solar system came to be, but it's uh, painting it as a, a, a poetic anthropomorphized story of God's battling it out. And so, yeah, I, th- I think it's just a cosmological tale having to do with the stars and the planets and uh, the oldest well, the, it's definitely a Sumerian tale, but the most extensive version that we have is the Babylonian version. So that's not the oldest version, but it's the most extensive version that everybody knows and reads. And in that version, Marduk is painted as the protagonist, like most of the Babylonian texts. You know, right around Babylonia, at the times of Babylonia, Marduk and his priests pretty much rewrote him as the protagonist and everything. So we don't have the actual extensive original, but um, we can pretty much surmise from the Babylonian Babylonian version that, you know, this, this had to do with some kind of celestial tale. Yeah. That, that just made me realize I, I, when I was looking over your channel and guys, you got to check out his channel. Like he has, I'm telling you like esoteric Eddie, I think has the best 
channel on YouTube. I'm not, I'm not just saying that because you're on my show right now. Like, and this will be a recorded for people to hear. Like, I love your channel. I was like taking a nap today and I was like li listening to the videos. It's like, they, I just let your playlist play. Like, and the one that I came across that I was really fascinated with was Ukraine, Arata and the Aryans. And in this video, you talk about that this Arata civilization that the Sumerians talk about in their tablets could have been the precursor to what we would call now modern day Ukraine. And I just thought that was fascinating. I had never heard that before. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, obviously we got all this stuff going on with Ukraine and Russia. And so, um, and I have a friend, a dear friend who uh, has bounced back and forth some ideas with me about Ukraine and, and the ancient past, you know, she's Ukrainian. So, Obviously, it's a very passionate subject for her. And she kind of brought some things up to my attention, which led me down the path of eventually making the video. But upon my research, what I found was, um, for one, Ukraine is actually, uh, sorry, hold up, got some feedback here. Okay. Uh, upon my research, what I found was that Ukraine is actually home to one of the oldest civilizations, um, not the oldest uh, I would say sophisticated civilization like Sumeria, where you have like huge temples and huge systems of, of government and, and civilization, but it is home to one of the oldest uh, tribal civilizations known as the Tripilians. They were a fascinating people. <clears throat> According to the anthropologists that have studied them, uh, they were a matriarchal society and they were very peaceful. Um, and they, they left behind a lot of art that we still have, uh, today, a lot of art and artifacts. And they had this weird custom of building these very large tribal villages and burning them down every 50 years or so, and then moving onto the next spot, which was very weird. We don't know exactly why they did that. But so, so Ukraine is home to one of the oldest known, uh, you know, civilizations. And there was this concept or theory in throughout the seventies and onwards coming out of Ukraine that uh, stated that <clears throat> Ukraine might have been Arata. Now, Arata, for those who don't know, was basically like a rival kingdom to Sumer. And we know this because of Sumerian texts. Sumer talks about this kingdom of, of Arata, I think in about uh, like two to three different texts. And one of them is like the Lord and Merkar and, and the Lord from Arata or something like that. I'm, I'm, That's exactly uh, it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A lot of information to go through, man, in my brain. always. It's hard to get some of the finer details, but yeah. So there are Sumerian texts that speak about this kingdom of Arata. And one of them, the one that I just named, gives us a description of, of how to get there and what it looked like. So the so Sumerian priest had to travel to Arata to send a message to the king. You know, basically the king of Sumer and the king of Arata had this like rivalry and were sending messages and kind of soldiers back and forth. And we're told that, you know, you have to go, uh, northwest and you go through like a desert and like seven mountains and when you get there it's the land of lapis lazuli and all these different things and so throughout the 70s and onwards when uh, ukraine started to gain its independence for the first time in modern history um, a lot of fringe scholars who i cover in the documentary uh, started to paint these beautiful concepts about ukraine's past and history and one of those concepts was that it was the legendary errata Excuse me. And uh, I don't think that that's true, uh, per se, based on what I found. Um, I think that Arata was actually Armenia, 
based on some of the other research that shows uh, that side of it. Um, but that's kind of where it all happened. You know, a, a lot of times when um, these nation states like Ukraine and stuff like that gain their independence or whatever, um, they start to try to build like a mythology or, or just dig into their roots and try to look at who they are. Who are we now that we're not a part of this fascist re regime and stuff like that? And so that's kind of what was happening. A lot of these fringe scholars um, throughout the 70s and onwards were kind of coming up with, with these fanatical theories about Ukraine and, oh, we are the legendary errata of the Sumerian tales. And all, although that was cool and fascinating, I don't think that they had to go to that length because Ukraine is fascinating and does have very ancient and old history um, apart from the whole errata theory. You know, again, they have this Tripillion civilization. They have all these ancient sites with very old artifacts. And and uh, also it's it's near the hub of the beginning of the entire European history to begin with, you know, because we have this what's known as the Indo-European Indo-European migration, which I also cover in the video. And that whole thing is very fascinating, too. In scholarship, there's been this debate for decades and decades as to you know, who the Aryans were and who brought the Rig Veda and, and the, the Sanskrit language and, and culture into India. And so I covered that as well. But uh, yeah, Ukraine and that whole area, the Black Sea area, there's a lot of fascinating ancient history there having to do with the earliest of years of European history and earliest of years of modern human history. What, what, what is up with that Indo-European migration? Where did that come from? Is that the theory that, that like the Aryans kind of migrated over into Persia and then eventually they came from Europe and they migrated over into Persia and then um, into um, the Indus Valley? But here's one thing that, that doesn't that I, I don't it seems like like the, the, the earliest civilizations we know about are like Sumeria, Persia, Babylon, then Greece, Rome you know, like all that stuff. It seems like Europe wasn't founded till like way later, but we're starting to find out that like Hyperborea did maybe once exist. So like where, what, can you talk a little bit about this from what, or what we know or what we can speculate on? Yeah. So the Indo-European migration is a theory that was born again, like late 1800s, early 1900s. And what it states is basically that there was a hub pastoralist people living in like central Eurasia, which would be like right around Ukraine, Tibet and that whole area. And that these pastoralist people <clears throat> started to spread out. And for a long time, like the theory was that it was a very rigid spread, you know, straight from central Eurasia and then like down to India and then from India over to like the Middle East and then did like a circle. So it used to be like a very rigid, hard set thing. And this science or history used to be used to justify a lot of racial, racially charged politics. You know, like the most extreme um, example would be the Nazis. The Nazis played a lot on this whole Indo-European migration because that's exactly where this whole Aryan idea comes from. And, and uh, well, actually, the, the word Aryan and the concept of the Aryans actually comes from the Vedas, the Hindu text. That's where the word and the, the history comes from. We're told in the Vedas that in the earliest of days, there were these, these people known as the Aryans who were the God-fearing people, who were horse-riding warriors, who uh, brought the Sanskrit to the lands, and that the Aryans um, subjugated and defeated what are 
described in the Hindu text as the dark hued people. So there was this like weird thing where like, oh, the Vedas say that, you know, lighter skinned, fair skinned warriors, you know, took over the lands and subjugated the darker skinned indigenous people. And so that whole idea was was used for racially charged politics like that of the Nazis. Um, but again, there's this huge debate that's been going on for decades where Indian nationalists say it's the other way around, where the uh, hub of humanity kind of started in India and then outward to all the other places. But as I show in the video, the most recent genetic work done on the Indo-Aryan or Indo-European migration people shows that Sanskrit was brought into India. Um, so and a lot of it was... Uh, brought into India through the way of what are known as the Kurgan people. So for many years, for the first few thousand years in our modern timeline, so going back to like basically like 600, six, uh, 6,000 BC, for the first couple of thousand years, everything was pretty peaceful and then in, in Europe. And then what are known as the Kurgan people um, who were horse riding, fair-skinned warriors, kind of just like obliterated through everything, and and uh, we actually can see in the timeline of genetics that the Kurgan genetics started to like take over the entire population. At one point, like ninety percent of the Indo-European people had Kurgan genetics. Um, but we're also finding out that it wasn't this like rigid, hard set, linear thing. That a lot of it was kind of a blend of different human cultures existing at once that were kind of trading information and culture. So at this point, we still don't really know who created the Vedas and exactly where they came from. But there are so many similarities in all European languages, as I also cover in, in Russian, in, in Sanskrit, um, in Latin, some of the Middle Eastern languages. All those European languages and Middle Eastern languages share a lot of common root words. So the way I see it is that, you know, at one point, we probably were one human family. And as the story of uh, the Tower of Babel says, you know, something happened that caused us to disperse and then our languages became differentiated. But um, it's obvious that at one point we were one human family. Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree. I always I always quote that Tower of Babel story that like it seems like to me like that, like humans might have been trying to escape the simulation or they're not or doing what they you know, like they, they were really primitive. Right. So maybe they felt like this is just a theory that this is and it's kind of an out there theory. I'll admit that. But I was thinking maybe we were so primitive that they thought the only way to escape the, the simulation was to build up and escape out that way. But, you know, for some reason, God decided to, to, to turn it down. Like, but you always talk, hear stories about like even like Freddie Silva says that the gods built a ladder to heaven. So maybe they were mimicking what they saw the gods do or what they thought was the gods. But it was just advanced technology. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I think so, man. I think that that could be so. Um, Sitchin's idea and not to like hark on Sitchin, but I, I like the way he broke it down and he broke, he thought that the tower was actually uh, like a rocket tower, like a rocket launch tower, you know, but I mean, who knows what it is? I mean, the Bible is fascinating and holds a lot of metaphor and, and just beautiful poetry, but some of it is based on actual history that's been kind of lost to us. So the only way to pass it down is through like these fanatical stories that are exaggerated a bit. 
Um, but I mean, the history shows, man, the history shows in the etymology of our languages in Europe that there was a root language. And if for there to be a root language, there must have been a root people and something had to have happened. And that something was probably one of the cataclysms that have occurred in the past 10 to 20,000 years that caused us to disperse. And as we disperse, you know, we, we differentiated and, and gained our own cultural identities and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to switch the subject to, over to ufology because one of the, your most fascinating videos too is um, Voldemort Valerian and the reptilians. And I can't tell you how much I really love that video, man, because that's kind of like old school ufology to me. Like it's like, it's like a little bit of sci-fi mixed with um, like ufology, but it's like, is it real? We don't know. Like what are your thoughts on that whole story? And, and that was an excellent job, by the way. I just, I love that video. Thank you. Yeah, just a quick history on Valdemar Valerian. Um, so Valdemar Valerian, he he was ahead of his time, and he uh, wrote a series of books in, starting in the early 90s um, known as the Matrix series. And it was about five books. And throughout the entire series, he basically collects all these different pieces of information from whistleblowers, experiencers, government documents, and his own experiences. And to this day, there's really not much on Valdemar Valerian. That is actually a pseudonym for apparently some guy named John Grace. But looking at some of the information on him online, this guy was well connected with a lot of people early on, like Linda Malton Howe or whatever from uh, you know Ancient Aliens and just a lot of those early Ancient Alien kind of producers and, and, and researchers. So he was ahead of the game. He was dropping all this knowledge way before Gaia TV, Ancient Aliens and all this stuff. And so... Um, a friend of mine actually sent me the book like a couple years ago. And so I've been meaning to dig into it. And so eventually I, I dug into his work and everything. And it was just, yeah, it was fascinating. Cool. It was really cool stuff. It reminded me of like some of the early stuff I got into back in like 2010, 2011, like just that very like heady um, conspiracy stuff. And so what I did was I sifted through all five of his books and collected everything pretty much that he has to say about reptilians and grays and presented a timeline of what, what that is, you know, of what he concluded due to all the information he's collected. And um, I, I grew up loving the whole gray and reptilian thing. When I first got into this, you know, almost two decades ago, like I was fascinated by the reptilian theory and the grays and all of that still am. Um, it's just not a major focal point. But what's really interesting, actually, is I've been asking myself recently, like, what's up with the grays? You know, like I, I haven't heard anything about the grace. I mean, Me too. I know it's weird, right? Well, I, I have, I have some people who who email me and say that they're still experiencing negative abductions. I, I don't know, you know, but you, you don't hear about it like you used to. Like when we were growing up, or I grew up in the eighties and nineties, like, and it was like polluted with abduction stories. You know what I mean? And right around the Art Bell days, like it was like, it was like that's all the that was like the main thing. That was like the you know, like now it seems yeah. to have like teetered off yeah exactly man and <clears throat> i mean we're seeing what we're being told are ufos in the skies and there's all this ufo disclosure but nothing on the grays i haven't heard a single gray alien story or sighting in over a decade probably you know so i think something weird's happening there i don't know um but i like credo mutwa's uh concept of the grays you know the guy who brought us the reptilian idea through the through David Icke's interview, uh, Credo believed that the Greys were us from the future, and that they were only coming back to sort of uh, 
what's the word, sort of uh, reprimand us and warn us about what we were doing and the timeline that we were setting ourselves on. And I kind of vibe with that. You know, it seems like they only come around whenever we've shifted into a timeline that would cause us to become them or even worse, completely destroy ourselves. And I heard Joe Rogan one time talk about, you know, time machines on his show. And he was saying, you know, I don't think time machines really are real because if if they were, then everybody would have them or something like that. And I don't agree with that idea. You know, I think I think there is a time machine that exists right now, but I think it's just kind of like nuclear weaponry. If that if those are real, too, which is a whole other rabbit hole. But it's just like nuclear weaponry. You know, it's like not everybody's going to have a nuclear power plant, you know, like to have a time machine. I think that by the time we're ready to have a time machine as a global society, I think we're going to have to reach such an elevated state of consciousness that war and disease and stuff like that will have to be eliminated. And that the time machine is going to be like just one thing that a council of the most highest, most pure beings are going to be in charge of. And that maybe the grays in some timeline are um, are being allowed access to it to come back and, and perform what they've been doing, which is, I don't know, like performing these weird genetic mutations to go and spawn off other Earth societies and to also warn us about the timelines that we're shifting into. So what do you think, like, if you had to speculate, what do you think the role of the reptilians would be then? Because, like, it, like it seems, would do, do they have a place or do you think there's any reality to the reptilian lore? I think there's reality to it for sure. Again, coming from Credo, you know, Credo talked a lot about the reptilians and and how they uh, are spoken of in ancient African lore. Um, and Credo believed that the reptilians were from here. You know, the reptilians are from this planet. You know, Mother Earth has spawned all sorts of species over the billions of years. And I believe that. I believe Earth is a beautiful planet that spawns all kinds of things throughout the years. We've already witnessed the extinction of some animals and uh, species in our own lifetime. You know, so I'm sure a lot of things have gone extinct. A lot of things have been born. And so I, I can agree with that. I think the, the reptilians are from here and they just might have reached a point where they they left here because Credo also teaches that. It is, it is imperative for us to leave this planet, not completely, but to at least reach the point where we can leave if we want to. It's, it's, it should be our mission as a global society to build the technology to be able to go out and reach other stars and seed other star systems. Hmm. Well, what do you think about the fact that like there might like people say that there's already people on Mars and that we're being lied to? And what are your thoughts on all that? Uh, I haven't really heard too much of that. I don't I don't believe it just because I haven't dug into it myself. I don't know what data there is on that, but I, I don't think so. You know, I think Mars is probably desolate. I mean, there might be some sort of operations over there, but they're probably small. You know, they're probably just getting ready to terraform it um, for some future where the elite will get to go over there and hang out and kick it at some vacation spot. But uh, <laughs> if they do... I mean, no matter where they go, they're going to need plumbers. So I'm sure I'll be all right. Yeah, um, that that's that's awesome. So you're doing you're you're working with the public. I am too, man. I know what it's like. Like that's I give you kudos. Like I I trust me. I know exactly what you're. I I've done construction. I've done all, all that. 
stuff. So like, I know exactly, you know, I was worked as a carpenter for a while. One, one thing I wanted to get into uh, a couple things before we go, which we've only been going about 40 minutes, but there's a couple more things I wanted to, um, you had an, an astral, well, before your astral travel experience, I wanted to ask you what you thought about the time machines. Cause like there is the, the chronovisor. I don't know if you remember that from the art bell days, but like the Andrew Basago would talk about that. And then, and then it's been brought up recently. Then people have talked about the looking glass device that's called the yellow cube. And then we also have CERN. We don't know what CERN's doing that they could possibly be doing something what could be manipulating timelines. I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on all that. Yeah, man, certainly. So the chronovisor, um, I know some of it, that, that story freaks me out. I I've yet to dig into it. It's on my list to dig into, but that one freaks me out because it's if it is true, that's just crazy. You know, I think it was like a priest, right? Some priest built something that allowed him to like look at snapshots of the past. And he claimed to have be able to take snapshots of what he was looking at. And so he's got a snapshot of Jesus on the cross and stuff like that. That one's wild. And I just I'm pretty much done uh, writing my next book, which is on consciousness and the simulation theory slash reality. Um, and so I've learned a lot about consciousness, the fabric of space time and kind of how all of this works. And so time travel isn't impossible. It's just, we just have to view and think of space and time differently. You know, it's more like about dimensions and stuff like that. And there is a, a mainframe, if you will, um, at least that's what the CIA called it in their gateway uh, document. There's a mainframe, what the mystics would call the Akashic Records, that holds all information. It's it's where infinity exists. And so, if we can tap into infinity or if tap into that mainframe, the hard, the hardware or the Akasha, then we can gain information. You know, we can gain information and we can probably travel to different points in time. But I don't think we can necessarily relive those moments. They're more like holographic experiences. At least that's the way I understand it right now. Well, I, I, I agree. I've done, I've done Robert Monroe's um, gateway experience, or at least I've tried it. It's like a five part series on YouTube. It's, it's for free. Anybody can try it. And I would encourage people to go do it, but I've also experimented with Robert Monroe's hemi-sync binaural beats to try to get out of body. And I had an experience similar to you, to be honest with you. Like um, I would, I, I almost popped out of body a couple times. One time I think I did pop out of body. Then I, I went back in, but then I've said this on my channel many times. I started to pop out of body and I started seeing, I, or at least my, my perception started to change. I was laying in my bed and I had my headphones on and I started to pop out. I felt like I was like, my perception was changing. Right. And as my yeah. perception was changing, I started to see two shadow beings and I, it made me back away from the experience completely. Then what was weird is I was on your channel today and I saw your video about your astral travel experience and uh, the demonic attack. Can you talk about that? Cause I think that's very important for people who want to try to do this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was growing up and getting into this information as a preteen, like 12, 13, I never really heard about astral projection, um, but I was barely learning about it. And I had barely, uh, came across the Emerald Tablets of Toth. And so when I learned about that book and what it was, I was fascinated. And I first started reading the Emerald Tablets of Toth on my old bulky computer. And I remember I was about 13 years old and, and I was reading through it and I reached like the halfway point and I kind of got spooked 
and kind of like put it away. And I remember going to sleep that night, having my first astral projection experience, but I didn't know that it was that at that time. It was a very simple experience. Basically, I, I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night or so I thought I did. And so I got up and everything kind of seemed very slow, like as if I was in water. And as I got up from my bed, I, I started floating slowly downward to the floor. And so when that happened, I was like, oh, I must be dreaming. And I remember hitting the floor and kind of just looking through my door into the hallway where I could see the light of my parents' room, you know, flashing or beaming. And so I just laid there for a little bit and was like, this is a weird dream, whatever. And so then I snapped out of it, was back in my bed. And the same thing happened again, got up to go to the bathroom, was in this weird watery state and floated downward. And so I was like, well, I guess I must be dreaming again. And then the third time I, I finally did wake up and everything kind of sped up. I could hear the noise. I could feel everything. And so I just shook it off as a dream. And I never really finished the Emerald Tablets at that time because I was a little spooked and I was barely getting into this stuff. But it wasn't until a few years later when I was about 16 years old when I got back into it and had a, a real astral projection experience, which I was aware of. And at that time, I was on probation uh, during summer um, as just a stupid teenager. And so I had nothing. And my entire family was pretty much gone that summer. My my uh, my sister had moved out of the house. My dad and my brothers were off on some job you know, for, for weeks and my mom was just busy. So I was home at the house pretty much on probation or house arrest. And so I had nothing better to do but just to get back into my studies. So I was kind of practicing some very light magic stuff and just trying to just tap in and see what I could do. You know, I, I've always been a writer too. And at that time I was writing a fictional story. And so I needed some inspiration. And so I was digging into the occult for some inspiration for my characters and my stories. And so I, I opened up the book of Toth again and I read it and read through it. And again, I, I closed it, went to bed that night. And that night I remember waking up and just, just where my room was situated in that house, the moon would always be right at my window and like lighting up my 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 room so i woke up and there was a full moon and my entire room was lit up by the moon and um i just felt that wateriness again and and i knew i was like oh i'm astral projecting because i knew what it was at that point and uh i regrettably didn't look back at my body i just got up as a spirit body and as an astral body and i kind of immediately just circled around my room and then went to my door and like floated through my door and as I floated through my door, I go to the hallway and I and I make a left and I would just get struck with fear because there's this shadowy figure there. It's, it doesn't really have a face or anything. It's just a shadow being, this um, negative energy entity. And at that exact moment, now looking back, I think it was a test because Toth teaches in the Emerald Tablets how to dispel these beings and i have a video on my channel that that details that and goes through that process for you and so in in that moment it was like a laser from my consciousness shot to the emerald tablet book that was on my desk and like quickly downloaded the information and shot back and in that instant i knew what i had to do i had to utilize the process um, that he teaches and so in that moment i i gathered up what was my light and then beamed it or shot it at this entity and it it disappeared. It was vanquished. And then at that moment, I kind of just stood there for a bit and then shot back into my body. And I woke up and I didn't really believe it. I was like, there's no way that just happened. Like that had to have been a dream. And so I just went about my my night, you know, went to the bathroom, went back to sleep, you know, and I've lived a very wild life. So I'm, I'm pretty desensitized to things, you know, crazy things can happen in front of me. And, and I will just be like, okay, whatever. 
Um, so at that moment, I go back to sleep. But it wasn't until the next morning that I was convinced that that really happened. Because the next morning, the next morning, my mom asked if I wanted to go have breakfast with her. And I was like, okay. So we went to go have breakfast. And she basically just asked me, you know, are you doing okay? How are you doing? Because I was on house arrest and all that. And I didn't want to bring up the experience to her. I didn't want to freak her out. So I was just like, no, I'm, yeah, I'm doing cool. I'm doing good. And she's like, okay, are you sure? Because last night I walked by your room and I felt such a dark presence that I had to stop and pray for you. And when she said that, that like sent chills down my spine. And that's when I knew what had happened was real. I did actual project and I did vanquish this energy demon thing. Do you think it was like the help of your mom praying too? Or do you think that had like both energies might have helped vanquish it? I think so. I think that could have been a possibility. And my mom's a trip. She's got her own stories as a kid and a teenager and dealing with the paranormal and and stuff like that. We've, we've got a lot of that in our family. So yeah, I think it all helped. And, but looking back again, I think it was more about like it being like a test or a challenge kind of as to if I understood this stuff and if I actually understood how to use it. And I still use that technique to this day. And the funny thing is actually, I I've actually been using the technique ever since I was a kid. I just never really knew that I was until I read it and understood what I was doing. That's fascinating. So has your family kind of always been into like the occult and mad or I know you said you kind of messed around magic. That was another question I had. Well, sorry, I I lost my train of thought. So I was going to say like, was, what do you think it was kind of, you said you were, when you were on house arrest, you were kind of messing around with magic too. Do you think you might've accidentally summoned something, not knowing, not knowing what you were doing and that, that was it. Or do you think it just was there kind of, spying on you like because you were astral projecting yeah i mean i've 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 lightly dabbled with like occult magic if you could even call it that i've never like set up an actual ritual i've just everything's mental you know and everything's intention and so i've done things with the intention of trying to contact the other side you know like just light things like scrying which is like staring into like mirrors black mirrors just meditational techniques of trying to like really go transcend and go within and tap into things. And um, sometimes just reading very dark material with intention and, and can bring things out. And that's what I was doing at that time. I was working on a fictional book. And so what I was doing was researching and reading a lot of grimoires because I was trying to find inspiration for character development and names. And my idea was to actually implement like real demon names into my characters not to like plague my readers, but actually to transmute the the information, to, to transmute the energy. Um, because if I've believed that by using real demon names and like real angel names and stuff like that into, built into the characters, it's the same thing that like Hollywood does. You know, it's like they, it's all, it's, it's basically spells, you know, they use the sigil magic and, and uh, you know, words and spells like that to bring about a certain programming. And so what I wanted to do was kind of use that same science, but to transmute it and, and give power to my readers as opposed to take it from them. Um, so I was doing stuff like that, like up at like I'd be up at like three in the morning, you know, like just just doing stuff, like researching stuff like that, meditating, scrying. And, and there was a, this one moment where I was doing that like around three in the morning. And I noticed like this energy thing like almost like a portal like just quickly opened to the left of me and I could have sworn that I saw something like come out of it and like look at me and then jump back in like within a second you know I can't prove or disprove that but but maybe I was just so tired and delusional that I thought I saw that 
but yeah, that whole time period of my life, I was, it was it was kind of dark, and so I might have uh, played a role in instigating this thing to show up. That's awesome. Now, did you ever have a lot of experiences with like psychedelics? I've been trying to cover psychedelics a lot lately. I'll tell you mine. Like I'm 42 years old right now, right? So like in my, I always tell people this in my teens and 20s, like I experimented with like shrooms and LSD and I took ecstasy a couple of times, but I did it more like as a party thing, you know? But then in my late 30s, as I got more into this awakening, like I always listened to Art Bell when I was a kid, but when I got into my awakening, I started experimenting with psychedelics again, like just because as like for consciousness expansion, like, did you have a similar path or what was your experience with psychedelics like? Oh yeah, man. So I'm the youngest of four kids, one older sister, two older brothers. And my oldest brother's like five years older than me. And um, they both played a huge role in my cultural upbringing. I remember being like in fourth grade, third and fourth grade, and my brother's coming up to me and be like, hey, man, you want to come smoke this weed with us? You know, and <laughs> I, at, at that time, I was innocent enough to to still hate drugs. I thought drugs were so stupid, and I thought they were dumb for doing them. And I'm like, no, you're stupid. And And I would just sit back and, like, draw comics and do my own little stuff. But I, I would see my brother smoking weed when I was like in fourth, third grade. And um, I hung out with a lot of older people. And so I started drinking and smoking weed, uh, you know, cannabis when I was like around 12 years old. Started drinking around you know, 11, 12, started smoking cannabis, 12, 13. And then had my first tr mushroom trip when I was about 14 years old. Um, but I was always heady. Like I grew up listening to Hendrix and Pink Floyd. I, I was like in third and fourth grade, like throwing up the hammers from the Pink Floyd movie, like tear down the wall, tear down the wall. Like I always hated authority and I, I, I didn't even know why I didn't trust the government, you know, cause I grew, I grew up listening to, to rap and classic rock and all that stuff. So it was always that way. But my first shroom trip at like 14 years old, like really just changed the game for me. Cause I didn't know that we could feel such a feel and see such a different reality. And so um, all throughout my life, since 14 to now, 28 years old, I've probably had a, a several shroom trips. I can't even count, honestly, all the shroom trips that I've had and micro doses that I've had. Uh, but my respect for the mushroom has changed. I'm not, I'm not a tripper, and to honest, I'm not even an adrenaline. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not into like doing wild and crazy stuff. I've just, you know, just happened to be around crazy people and just been loyal and down for fun. So sometimes I get myself into crazy situations. But over the years, I've calmed down and, and I've grown a respect for the mushroom. You know, I, I'm more so about microdosing these days than diving into the full trip. And mo most of it is because <clears throat> that's what the mushroom has told me. Every like major trip that I've had, the past couple major trips that I've had, the main lesson for whatever reason is always like, you've already learned this. It's time to keep going. You know, so that's that's what I'm doing. I'm just I'm I, but I know I'm going to have to come back. I know that there is another communion forming. You know, there's another meeting that will have to take place between me and the shroom gods um, some point within the next few years. I know that for sure. Have you ever had any experiences with any entities like in your life, like on, on psychedelics or just in meditations or, or, or in your paranormal experiences? I know you said your family's had par paranormal experiences. Like, have you ever had any other experiences with like entities or anything like that? I've had a lot of strange experiences throughout my life. And um, I don't talk a lot about them because like, um, for one, like who's going to believe me, you know, like 
there, there, I have a lot of experiences where even I don't really believe myself that it happened. And then the, but then there are some experiences where like I am without a doubt, like sure that they happened. And as far as entities, I mean, my entire life I've been dealing with entities. Have I ever seen something straight up with a face uh, or whatever, like a body and a face that seemed physical? Um, not really. I've just had like very like phantasmic experiences. You know, like when I was little, I've just the usual hearing very strange noises, hearing. And for a while, I thought I was going crazy. And that's kind of why I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to like it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy of me like going schizophrenic and just playing into that. So for example, like I, and, and this is, this is weird for me to admit, I don't like admitting this, but there've been at least two occasions in my life where I have very audibly he heard something say my name, like very audibly, like without a doubt, something whispered my name to my ear, you know? Um, and I don't know what to make of that, you know? And <clears throat> to, stop myself from going crazy and schizophrenic because I've had friends actually go schizophrenic and lose their minds. And one of them actually passed away due to spiraling too far into the abyss. Um, I, I have to like, kind of just laugh these things off sometimes, you know, not maniacally laugh them off, but just kind of like look at them and say, okay, you're like, that was strange, but I'm not going to like go onto this paranoid trip thinking that I'm being watched and something's out here to kill me. Like whatever it happened. It was weird. It was cool. But I, I have real life responsibilities and things that I need to take care of. So I'm not going to dwell on these beings out there or these men in black and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it makes me think about like we're really like to summarize everything. What's really going on with our reality? I think like and, and, and I think you do so well to summarize like that you do so well covering this on your channel is that our reality is way more mysterious than we ever thought or we were ever taught. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you one quick story. This is, this is one of the more fascinating stories that I still hundred percent believe happened. And I have two witnesses, um, but unfortunately only one of them remembers and he's starting to kind of like not really believe it or whatever. But um, long story short, you know, me and my friends were, were having a good time in this forest, smoking some cannabis, just doing our thing. And we leave the spot that we're at and we go a different direction than we came. So we, we leave, we go a completely different direction that we had not even touched at all that entire day. And we were walking for about five to 10 minutes. And one of our friends is, is trailing behind us, um, limping because he had just cut open his, his shin. So he's like, you know, 15 feet behind us or so limping. And me and my other friend are in front kind of just, you know, laughing, whatever, telling jokes and stuff. And then I noticed to the right of me, an iPod, a white iPod and a bag of cannabis just sitting there perfectly next to each other. And so before my friend can see it, I kind of push him and I jump toward it and grab it. And I'm like, dude, look what I just found. Check this out. And so we're all kind of celebrating. And then I look at it <laughs> a little closer. And then I look at my friend Max and we instantly simultaneously thought the same thing. He starts checking his pockets and his backpack to only to find that that was his iPod and his bag of cannabis that we had just, that we were just using at the spot we were at. So his, his weed and his iPod had somehow quantumly glitched out of his pocket and backpack into that spot. And um, our friend Christian, the one that was in the back hobbling, he didn't see all of that because he was behind us. So he, he thought we played a joke on him. 
He didn't believe it. He's like, no, nah, you guys are messing around. But me and Max, we we both were right there. We witnessed it. And um, we were really high. We were like teenagers. And at that time, we were, we had we were uh, we had this running meme in our friend in our friend group about skinwalkers because we we were just learning about skinwalkers and what they were. And we come from a place called San Marcos uh, in North County, San Diego. And San Marcos has a lot of legends of like Native American stuff like that. And and so we had this running meme that there were these skinwalkers that were kind of like playing tricks on us during those days because those were like our early mushroom days and smoking days. And we were always hanging out in forests, telling creepy stories. And so we we kind of laughed it off as like the skinwalkers are here, you know, like they're messing with us. So we like ran and left the forest. And again, we were just kids and we thought it was the funniest thing. But looking back, like as an adult, I'm just like, wait, like, did that really happen? Like if that really happened, like that is probably the most wild thing I have ever experienced. And I've experienced yeah, a lot well, of I was gonna wild say, things. You're writing a book on the matrix and like simulation theory, you said, right? Like, is that, have you had more instances where things have kind of glitched out in your life? Like, I know I have, like, I, 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 I totally believe, I totally believe we're in a simulation. I totally believe I I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent like convinced that we're in, I think it's more of like a biological simulation because I feel like I'm very real. Like I know Gerald Clark used to talk about that, like Michael Talbot's book called the, the holographic universe that we have certain rods and cones in our eyes that make us perceive what's real and what's not real. Like, for example, like my computer's not really real. It's just kind of like molecules put together. And I'm, I'm probably butchering this, but I think you probably get the idea what I'm trying to say, but like it's nothing's really real or stable. It's all like a holographic perception. Is that, do you know what I'm trying to say? And have you ever oh, thought yeah. about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just finished writing my book um, just the other day and it's, that's exactly what it's about. It's about consciousness, the subconscious, the simulation, the hologram, and a lot of fascinating academic work has come out to prove this last year, for example, was a huge year for quantum physics and basically, it's already been proven that this entire universe is a simulation. Now, that doesn't mean that we're in a video game. What that means is what you just described, that everything we see is run off of codes and programs at the molecular level, at the quantum level. And these quantum lattices, which are basically um, programs that are set in nature to, to grow and build um, the physical reality we see around us, is also evident at the macro level. You know, for example, and, and some of the examples are very simple. And we see them every day, you know, like a, a tree, for example, a tree starts off as a seed and that seed has the program built into it to to build the trunk, to build the tree. And then the, the branch is a smaller version of the tree. The twig is a smaller version of the branch and so on and so forth. And the true the same is true for us. You know, humans, we start off as as a, as a semen and an egg and and the process is cyclical. You know, a human is, is created within nine months, you know, generally speaking. And so that number, everything, that number is significant in many ways. You know, nature is run off of codes, numerical, systematic, cyclical codes. And these codes are expressed in geometry. For example, the egg is a circle and it splits off into other circles, which form the tree of life. So all around us, we are seeing numerical, cyclical, geometrical programs played out in the patterns of nature. And so we that is the simulation. But the conundrum at hand, 
you know, the issue at hand isn't that we live in a simulation. It's for one, who built it, who designed it. Yes. And two, um, are we being uh, shifted into another simulation? You know, are the archons or the shadowy elite, as I call them in my book, are they taking that science, that divine science of the simulation that is reality? And are they trying to um, imitate it and shift us into it? That's the question at hand right now. That, that's what we're seeing right now. We are consciousness, our reality tunnels, the way we view life and ourselves are being shifted. And, and they're being shifted by people who understand the, the true simulation and how, and how it works. Yeah, and it makes me think that like every time we've we've got maybe gotten to this point in our evolution, it's like they hit the they might have hit the reset switch on us, and it takes us back to like caveman days. Like I don't know if that's a possibility, but I know it's something that I've heard people say, and it's been theorized. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I'll answer that uh, right now. What I forgot to mention was so for last year, right? Last year, I mentioned this in my book. There was a huge advancement in quantum uh, physics. And there were three scientists who won a Nobel Prize in physics for proving what the headline was, the universe is not real. Um, but that that's kind of a misquote. What they actually proved was that the universe is not locally real. And um, even more so than that, what they actually won the prize was, was for showing um, violations of the Bell inequality. And that means nothing if you don't understand like physics and quantum physics but if you do understand it that statement alone is huge and massive so these three scientists um, prove that quantum entanglement is real and does exist and what that means is that two particles um, can send information to each other instantaneously no matter how far apart they are in the universe and that is faster than the speed of light and Einstein abhorred this science. He called it spooky action at a distance. He didn't believe it was real. He didn't believe that it could be possible. But these three scientists just proved that it is real last year. And that means that there are so many more weird things that are available and possible to us. It means telepathy is possible. It, it means that um, a lot of things. It, mean, it can mean that levitation could be possible. It, there are so many implications for our spiritual lives because of what these scientists have proved the universe is not locally real and what that means is um is that for okay so to understand that we have to understand locality locality and non-locality are physics terms locality basically is einsteinian science it means that everything's physical and it is what it is you're a body you have a brain and your brain produces consciousness non-locality is the opposite of that it, it says that no everything is not as it seems and consciousness is actually what is producing the brain and the physical world and that is what um, quantum entanglement shows by proving quantum entanglement is real it means the largest implication of that is that our entire universe is a hologram being projected by a consciousness that's what it basically means at the grand scheme of things so um, there's but, a there's a there's a there's a mat there's a main consciousness responsible for this simulation is what you're saying. Yeah, there's a mass consciousness responsible for all of this, and our personal individual consciousness is an emanation from that major consciousness. It's just like, do we ever get to meet the main consciousness, or do we ever get to find out what that is? We can only speculate at this point, right? 
Oh yeah. I speculate it in, in my book and, and um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the greatest questions that all the mystics have, have tried to answer, you know, but I don't want to give too much away from it. I'm sure I'll be back to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Other, that's what I was going to say. I, I definitely want to have you back. Like um, it, I love these conversations, man. Like we get so deep every time. Like, well, yeah. Thank you so much. And like, dude, you're awesome. Like I can sit here and talk to you all day. I know we're both busy though. You have a job. I have a job. And like, but, but, but can you tell everybody where to find your books and where to find your YouTube and all that, anything you want to promote? And again, thank you so much. This was awesome. Absolutely, man. I did want to answer your other question, though, if, if you wanted me to. I, I just forgot what it was. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember. Oh, man. No worries. Well, yeah, man, this was fun. This was fun for sure. And uh, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> and thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to follow me, follow me on Instagram at Esoteric Eddie. I post, I post a lot of daily content on there, behind the scenes stuff, some funny, some serious. Definitely go to my YouTube at Esoteric Eddie TV for full length documentaries and smaller videos. And for my books and everything else, go to my website at EsotericEddie.com. And I'll be back soon to talk about my next book, which is going to be released um, in mid-April. That's awesome. Well, yeah, and and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely get a hold of you. We'll do as soon as I find out your book comes out, I'll get a hold of you to uh, have you back on, man. And it, this has been fascinating. And thank you everybody for tuning in tonight. I would I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, until next time, man. Thank you. Have a good night. Peace. All right, everybody. Have a good night. <laughs>